0: Welcome to The Bridge, a podcast exploring how we get to the future we really want. My name is Jared Michaels. I am a Zen priest, a psychotherapist, and a longtime student of this bridge. I am thrilled to be here with my friend and colleague Chris Searles and our guests as we try to build this bridge together. Welcome to The Bridge. I'm Jared Michaels, and I'm so happy to introduce our esteemed guest, Professor Deborah Lawrence. Professor Lawrence, welcome.
1: Dr. Deborah Lawrence is a professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Her research focuses on the links between tropical deforestation and climate change and understanding the impacts on our climate from forest conversion around the globe. She spent more than 25 years doing field-based research in Asia, Central America, and Africa. She and her students conduct their studies with partners in hydrology, atmospheric science, economics, anthropology, and I'm sure many other fields in order to better understand the drivers and consequences of the issues around forest wilderness destruction today. Professor Lawrence has earned numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a fellowship from the National Academy of Sciences, and a Fulbright Scholarship. She earned her undergrad at Harvard, her PhD at Duke, and was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard. Dr. Lawrence, welcome to The Bridge.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am so excited that you're here. I'm especially excited that we're going to try and take on this topic of defragmentation. We're going to try and explore three dimensions of your career so far, this breakthrough study that has meant so much to me from uh, 2014 on teleconnections your experiences living with indigenous peoples and how that has affected your views on addressing the global environmental crisis today. And then we'll also finish by asking you to share some of your ideas about an optimal future. So again, thank you so much for being here. Let's start with your 2014 study, Effects of Tropical Deforestation on Climate and Agriculture. And I would describe teleconnections as the, in, in the simplest language, as the impacts that forests in the tropics have on atmospheric movement of moisture around the planet. But can you explain what tropical forest teleconnections are and how they affect the planet? And if possible, how they're different from other ecosystems' teleconnections?
2: I think, Chris, you had a a pretty good explanation. Um, The idea behind teleconnections is that the atmosphere is all connected. And if you think about it for a minute, of course it is. There it is, it bathes the entire planet but how do you put a bump into the atmosphere in one place and feel it somewhere else? That's what tropical forests can do. The the teleconnections are strongest when they're associated, when the atmosphere is associated with a lot of energy and a lot of moisture. So you can get that over the oceans. Think about the oceans, think about an El Nino. Some of your listeners might know about El Ninos. El Ninos hit the whole planet, right? but it starts in the Pacific Ocean. So similarly, if you have a vast area of forests, forests can move a lot of moisture through their leaves. And so tropical forests are different from other ecosystems because they're at the equator. The equator is where the sun's energy is greatest. So if you put all that energy into the planet right there at the equator, and it ends up coming out with moisture from forests, Um, That just sets up a whole bunch of dynamics in the atmosphere that sort of come out of the tropics and then affect the pattern in the higher atmosphere so that it ultimately can have ripple effects across the planet. Uh, A great analogy for this is thinking about boiling water on the stove. If you have a small pot and it's just started to boil, you have a little bit of steam, you can see it rising, but it just goes away. That's maybe a, I don't know, a farm in the tropics. If you have a bigger pot of water and it's going at a raging boil, there's a lot of moisture getting into the atmosphere. It's shooting up to the ceiling in your kitchen. It flies out across the ceiling through the door and it it triggers the smoke alarm. So you can, you know, that's like the kind of difference between certain ecosystems and tropical forest ecosystems. They simply create a lot of energy with moisture and that creates these connections in the atmosphere.
1: Is it fair or accurate to say that it, I mean, playing off of your analogy, that there is just a greater volume of water moving through the air in a tropical forest than in a tropical ocean?
2: I'm not sure if that's true. The ocean, the only thing going on at the ocean is evaporation. That's passive, depends on the temperature and the humidity. On the land next to it, in the tropics, you've got evaporation happening because it's also hot and you'll just evaporate anything off of any surface, but you also have transpiration and transpiration is the movement through the plant. And it's driven both by what's going on in the atmosphere and what's going on in the plant. So in a sense, it could be that it's magnifying an effect that's already there, but I don't know. There's also so much water available in an ocean. I'm not I'm not sure if it just by evaporating can actually create as much moisture and as much moisture flow as a tropical forest. We didn't have to talk to an atmospheric scientist.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, when I read this study, I I initially thought, okay, so if we put forests back, then we will restore balance of moisture circulation in the atmosphere. I'm not sure that's true. I'm also kind of curious now that it's been a few years since you published that study, what kind of takeaways you have resonating with you today
2: Well, I actually think um, partly because of my other work, my work actually studying forests as they grow back in the tropics, they grow back very fast. So within a decade or two decades, you can have like a really complete leaf cover. You don't have all the biomass, but with all that leaf area, with all those leaves, closed canopy, you can put back quite a good bit of that physical energy function. So the, so I'm actually hopeful about defragmenting in terms of the energy and moisture characteristics of the forests in the tropics. I think if we put our minds to it, we could get that back. That physical connection to the atmosphere, I think we can get it back, which is hopeful.
1: Yeah, that's super good news.
2: But I wanted to get back to your other part of your question, which was what are the takeaways for me from that study? The first big takeaway is that tree cover stabilizes climate. And it's important not only where you are, it's great where you are, but it's also important for stabilizing climate far away. Um, So I would say, as a people, we need to protect large, large patches of forest as much as possible. And if you're in a country that feels like, well, you know what, we need to, we need more agriculture, we need to feed our people, or we need to produce goods that are ready for market to advance our economies, then be thoughtful. There are certain configurations of deforestation that are less damaging than others, depending on the prevailing winds, depending on whether there's a big patch of forest nearby, depending on whether the ocean is nearby. Like there's a lot of things, there's things you can do to make it not so bad. So keep the forest and be thoughtful if you have to take the forest down.
1: Well, let me ask one more we probably should have defined teleconnections at the beginning that the tele means remote connections and so tropical forests remote connections to other ecosystems through the atmosphere can you give sort of a summary about the significance of that relative to the rest of the living systems on the planet
2: it is true that they are the most potent forests on the planet because they're at the tropics because they have all that incoming radiation, all that incoming energy and heat. And because they have, because of that, there is a moisture supply for them to work with. So they are like a giant moisture pump, you know, putting energy and moisture into the atmosphere. And they simply, you know, you, you only get that where the sun shines the brightest and the longest. If some weird thing were to happen, where with climate change, we got a, a belt of clouds around the equator, this would no longer be true. We'd be looking to Virginia and Florida and Maryland and Georgia to be producing all the energy and the moisture for the planet, but you'd have to get the clouds there to keep the sun from shining in the tropics. So, um, and and the boreal, you might think, oh, the boreal forest has like sunlight for I don't know, twenty four hours a day in the in the summer. So, couldn't the boreal forest be a giant engine? No, it's like when you spread out that that's incoming sunlight across You know, the angle's wrong, you spread it out over a much larger area, Um, it's simply not giving the same kind of input on a per square meter basis. So no, (laughs) I think the tropics are special. The one thing I was thinking, of was like, well, maybe if you had a wetland, a giant wetland in the tropics with really constant moisture, perhaps you could generate as much transpiration by a, a wetland. I don't know. I'm thinking that wetlands, that leaf area is simply too small. And the best thing you can do for leaf area is a tropical forest, which has like five to seven meters of leaf per meter on the ground. That's just phenomenal amount of leaf material.
1: Yeah. The leaves are little tiny pumps effectively. Yeah. 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 And so they're doing all this work and it just, it's, it's a much more, you could say complex system, but there's just a lot more volume of things moving around a lot more material to hold and circulate moisture and I have to ask you one more question I just remembered and then I will stop. So the thing I think that got the headlines in 2014 was um, that you guys showed that critical deforestation which I think is something like 20% of the Amazon for instance would cause drought in California and so on and so forth. Critical deforestation in the Congo could cause drought in the Midwest. And that goes around the planet that way, that if we lose these pumps from the tiny leaf scale all the way up to the macro scale of these giant trees, that it, it can radically alter the, the climate and the, the, level, the amount of moisture that's circulating over the United States and the rest of the world. And this is why this study is so important is that it seems to me to imply that if we regrow the Amazon back to say, you know, only 15% deforestation if we were to take on that project, we could assume scientifically or logically anyway based on the science that California might see less drought, and so on and so forth around the planet Australia might see less drought. I want to make no, sure I, that that's I hope
2: a- that's true. I hope that that's a possible outcome. Um, I will just say that what we showed, what we did was we we put points on the map on the entire globe of connecting deforestation in one place to an impact on re- rainfall in another. Um, the limitation of the all of the work is that we don't do experiments in reality. We do experiments in the model world. So we do experiments with computerized simulations of the planet. So what I was showing was all of the modeled modeled outcomes of deforestation. So there's the one question where like, how good are the models? Well, we don't know, they're what we have. And in some cases, when you can look at that figure in my paper, there's four or five or six dots in the same place, meaning there are six studies and all of them show that when you deforest in the Amazon, you have some effect in the upper Midwest. So there's robust results that suggest strong teleconnections between tropical deforestation at large scales. Like we're talking when you do a model run, you can take out the whole rainforest if you want. You know, you can take out 100 percent. You can take out 50 percent. Those are giant experiments meant to test what we think is going on in the atmosphere. So it's meant to give a big enough tweak to see something. So you can see it in a model. Whether we would see that in reality, it's hard to know. Whether we are seeing it in reality, again, hard to know. Um, The other thing is that sometimes they don't agree. So some people will say, well, that, that, that means it's not true. I say, no, that doesn't mean it's not true. That means we're not sure where the impacts will occur. All of the models suggest remote impacts. To me, that by itself, cut short, that is an effect that is important to communicate. Just because we can't say, and 95% of the time, the effects in California, that's, I mean, that's moot. It's gonna, it's gonna hit somewhere. If we could be 95% sure it was California, all the better. But the fact is these teleconnections occur. And when you disrupt that flow, it's gonna impact somebody somewhere. So for me, that's good enough. For some, they wanna say, um, Let's not talk about this until we know that it's always California or always the Midwest or always Southern France. Um, I say, well, fine, you know, do some more modeling. We're not gonna ever go out and deforest the Amazon just to try to prove a point. So do some more modeling, work with different types of models and let's keep adding it up. And it's what, five years later, it would be great to, to look again and see what the models say now. I bet they're still pointing to, to many of the same places. Thank
1: you for bringing that up. Yeah. This question of fragmentation of forests and regrowing forests and all of that just seems like the most urgent issue of our time really when you look at the sort of global environmental question on many, many levels, but let's come back to that. Thank you.
0: Before I ask, anything i just want to say how much i appreciate hearing just hearing uh hearing you talk honestly so we talked before we hit record and i uh told professor lawrence that i am a zen priest and you know the the heart of of buddhism is interconnectedness and uh, as you probably know you know that's the main teaching of it so it's so um Beautiful to hear you describe it scientifically. And it's just very, it's very validating. And um and I, it's it's just it's cool to see you, you know, you we're coming at the same teaching from different angles.
2: That is very cool. And in fact, I keep thinking to myself, well, yeah, it's just the truth. And maybe Zen Buddhists think also, yeah, it's the truth. But like, yes, it's all connected. I know that in my bones, and um, I'm sure you do as a priest as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just to, I I became a priest because I got it in my bones that yeah. it's true, and I thought this is my one way of communicating it. Yes. Yeah. So, I do have a question about all this. I mean, it it seems like we should you know protect the rainforests and that seems like the main action item is that fair to say yes so my question is do you recommend certain organizations to support to to do that do you, how, how how does how does the regular person help protect the best way to protect, protect these rainforests
2: wow Gosh, I should have seen this coming, right? Um, I go to two directions. One is knowing all you can about the products you consume. And then my other self says, wait, that's shifting the blame onto all of us when in fact we need serious action to change the structure of our economy. And so then I think, okay, forget worrying about where the oil palm is in your chocolate bars, in your soap, in your cosmetics, in your engine lubricant. Uh, The oil palm is everywhere and the oil palm is bringing down the forest. So you could worry about that. Or you could say, I'm gonna be sure that my local congressman or my local congresswoman or my senator or my president is interested in climate and is interested in the environment. And um, I really think we need some of both. On the one hand, making decisions every day and talking about it. Not in an awful way, but talking about it just saying, well yeah, I don't I don't buy that stuff because you know it's deforesting um, Indonesia uh, but also and that creates a sort of new normal and the conversation itself can inspire people to think, oh, I don't even think about where my chocolate bar comes from or I, I don't know, I don't know what Mars does. Do they have oil palm? So that's a great thing to have people thinking about it. But I'd like them to take that thought process into the voting booth and into their daily lives where they're thinking about how do I want to spend the extra hour of that I have today? And I would think that now that extra hour needs to be spent organizing and um, really addressing climate through the political system because we need serious action that none of us can do by ourselves despite the fact that it's all connected it's like some stuff is just too big
0: I love that I love that you didn't offer an organization I love that you offered I do I love that you offered a way to transform our habits and our system our whole system
2: I'm sure I can come up with some places where you should give money, but money is not enough. It's just not. We need to act.:
0: I agree. Well, this is uh, not going to be a smooth transition, but here we go into the next section of our questions for you. It's about your um, time in Borneo. And so my my first question is, what inspired you to go in the first place? And what inspired you to go at such a young age and work there for so many years?
2: I was lucky enough to go to college. And I was lucky enough that my college required a freshman seminar. And in my seminar, I learned about animal behavior and I was entranced by the idea of studying animals and by the wonderful experience of living in a strange place to do that, to study the animals. So I tracked down the professors at my school who did this kind of work, and I convinced one of them to take me with them for a year, and I took a year off of college. He wouldn't take any less. He was like, summer? no." I'm gonna put a lot into you and you're gonna put a lot out. You're gonna have to spend a year there. And I said, okay. So I spent a year as an undergraduate in the middle of nowhere in national, Gunung Palung National Park in West Kalimantan, the Indonesian part of Borneo. And I, I just loved it. That was when I learned. I didn't know the rainforest was at risk. I learned there. I heard chainsaws. Like I didn't go over there as a rainforest zealot. I went over to study primates. And I discovered that the the primates most at risk were the humans. Mm. Wow. I mean, sort of the the other primates seriously at risk as well. All of us, all of us primates.
0: And did the indigenous community share your your alarm or I don't know if that's the right word your sure. heartbreak whatever whatever the right. Words are
2: So, um, I got to working with Indigenous people, the Dayaks, they're called in Kalimantan, after I graduated. So, I sort of was awakened in college, decided I needed to work on this, and went back after college to, to be outside the park to see how people worked on the edge of the rainforest, and what were they doing, and was there any way that we could use the forest without using it up? So I wanted to understand how they used the forest. And I went to this dyak village and, and worked there for years and years. Um, I was basically trying to understand their land use practices. Um, they didn't think anything, they thought they were fine. They were fine. They had been there for 250 years. And it's funny because I, I think about my question being something like, is it possible to sustainably use the, the rainforest? And I'm thinking, I went to a village that was in existence for 250 years. The answer was probably yes. (laughs) But I kind of wanted to prove it. And I wanted to prove it the way scientists prove it with like, you know, soils data and data on tree diversity and understanding and documenting. And I I thought I was going to be kind of a, a scribe, a scribe of what these people did. So they thought they were fine. I'll tell you, they did have one risk that they saw. And after about six years, when I was there, every year, I'd ask everyone what well, so these people, they cut rainforest down to plant rice. And after they plant the rice, this is called shifting cultivation or swidden cultivation. You take the natural capital, the trees, it's a lot of nutrients. You cut them down, it dries out, you burn it, and then all that ash goes into the soil, makes a great crop for a year or two. Then you leave that, go onto your next patch, and come back 20 years later and it's a big forest, you cut it down same cycle. It's the way poor people have farmed forever, including in our country. So it's just it's a, it's a way to farm without inputs, external inputs. So I noticed after six years that they were cutting a lot of primary rainforest instead of just going back to their fallow forests. And I said, why are you cutting so much? Suddenly it was a dramatic shift. Why are you cutting so much? And more importantly, why are you planting so much rubber? So they had three kinds of forests. The natural forest that came back after rice, which was just unmanaged. You could think of them as weed trees. They're just the trees that come back. Then they had the option of planting fruit trees, many of which came from the rainforest. Their favorite things like durian or rambutan or just, I don't, I'm do trying to think of things that people would know, jackfruit. Um, so fruits, And the third thing was rubber. And rubber is the most amazing cash crop on the face of the planet because you can tap it out of the tree. You don't kill the tree. You don't take anything. You just tap the sap and it can sit there in your storehouse after you make a little, like a a sleeping pad. Uh, After you make your pad of rubber, it can stay there for months so it doesn't go away. Cash crops, the problem for poor farmers is they need to get to market fast and you can flood the market well, with rubber, you can wait until the market is good. Anyway, so they're all of a sudden planting tons of rubber and they're cutting rainforests to do it. They're not cutting old fallow forests. And I said, what's going on? And they said, oil palm is coming. And this is in 1990s. You know, oil palm is coming and we need to be sure that we have rights. And if we plant trees, the government of Indonesia respects our adat, meaning traditional Law, which is a planted tree, is is owner is owned, and there you have to be compensated if it's destroyed, and so we are cutting forest and planting rubber so that we have a claim on our own land. Now the government did not respect the idea that you could just steward a forest and manage it and not plant it and own it. Like these people believed they owned the forest around them but they were trying to conform to this notion of of land tenure that that said you don't own it unless you planted it. So they were cutting it so they could plant rubber. It was, seemed awful at the time. I will tell you that 20 years later, they had so much rubber that they were still in negotiation with the oil palm companies. They had not yet sold out and things were really great. So interesting decision. At the time I was, you know, crying thinking you're doing all of this to establish a claim, and you don't even know that you need the claim, but clearly they did, and it did turn out well in the end. So do they share my sadness? They were not thinking things were bad when I was there. Things looked pretty good, except for the possibility of losing their land, which is a big one uh, for sure. Land and water, like the water keepers thing, that is everywhere. They, they were worried about their water if something happened upstream.
0: Mm. Um just absorbing and yeah. I just have to think about that, all of that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, follow-up conversation in that. I think for now, I'm just going to ask a broader question. I'm curious about the scribe thing. Did you become a scribe? And another question is just what else did you learn during that time and then one one last thing about it 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 has to do with our email exchange and about the the resolution that you sure. found and I, I so i i include that last piece in the in the in the broader question just like what yeah. what did you what did you learn from this time
2: thank you um i i don't think i was an effective scribe i think i was Um, a a scribe who who didn't uh, know how to use a pencil or something. I didn't have Mm. the right pencil and I didn't seem to use it very well. I had only, you know, ballpoint pens or something, the wrong toolkit. I was such a scientist and I was so, um, I I certainly learned a ton.
1: Were were you completely by yourself in this village? um,
2: Initially, I had a friend who was doing, work in the logging concession and he would go out and i would stay in and i would work with the village people and he would go out and work with the loggers and then for most of my time there i was by myself and so you didn't, it was you really... didn't have
1: a mentor <laughs> no that
0: kind of thing.
2: no not really um i learned by trial and error and with lots of good faith and mostly that worked pretty well you know mostly it worked really well um i learned many lessons i mean i could t- talk I'd like to talk about the lessons that aren't connected to being kicked out. And then I would like to talk about getting kicked out and those lessons. Please. So there's several lessons. I've thought about this a lot. And I I think that the first thing that struck me from almost get-go was that people are the same everywhere. And um, what I mean by that is that they want enough to eat. These are exactly the things people wanted in this village. They wanted enough to eat. They wanted a decent house. For them that meant hopefully wood and not thatch. Um, They wanted schooling for their kids. They wanted care for their family when they were sick and they wanted enough money to throw a great wedding for their kids. That was it. And I'm pretty sure that's what I want as a parent. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. So stunning to me. I mean, maybe not stunning. Of course, we're all the same. So that's a big lesson. Maybe you just don't get that if you don't actually go somewhere else and discover they just want the same things. So that's important. Um, second lesson is about these, this idea of the water keepers, which we have in this country fighting the pipelines. Turns out that water keepers are everywhere. And if you start at an early age, the way they do in the village, caring for the water and by translation, caring for the land, it's just second nature. So I it's funny being a foreigner and coming in and going up in front of somebody in the water, um, somebody who's washing their rice and brushing your teeth. Well, guess what? That is taboo. The rice washers are at the top of the water, then the teeth brushers, then you have the people who are washing vegetables, then you have the people washing their bodies, then you have the people washing the dishes, and then you defecate a little further down. So like, this is the order. It's, uh, it sounds basic, but you know, not if you've never really thought about where your water comes from or if it's clean or not. And, and the water also has an even greater purpose. Like where I was, the highest thing you could do was say you needed to sanctify a marriage that was not going to be okay, like the wrong generation or the, the families were too close in blood but these people wanted to get married. Well, then you, you slip a, a shaman or a dukun, they called them, a dukun will cut the throat of a pig up in the water and the people will stand down river and they will bathe in that blood. Like that's how you get to marry the person you want. So the, the water is a big thing and the water, just, just as it is everywhere. And I think we've forgotten and we can probably get it back. I learned, I learned when I was there, we can get it back. Um, The third lesson I learned was that working together is how you do it when things are hard. And what I mean by that in the village context was they planted, like this is a place that is half a day from the nearest other village and a day from a hardware store or a hospital and, and days from like an operation. So like really in the middle of nowhere. And when that's the case, you pull together. So you pull together to plant your rice. It's much more efficient to have a bunch of people planting at once. You pull together um, when there is some kind of healing ceremony. um, You pull together. The men make this giant tent. Well, you can think of it as a tent or a, a party platform or something it's all of bamboo and thatch and it's all tied together with rattan I mean it's like made of natural fiber put up in a day so the party can happen because no one has a big house meanwhile all the women are making food for hundreds of people hundreds of people they're just they all contribute a little bit of rice they contribute a little bit of rice wine they bring some bamboo from their fields they all work together and it it works great and like life works Um, you know, planning a wedding there is hard, but it's nothing like planning a wedding in this country. So working together, I think we can do that too. Like things are hard for us right now and we can work together and we can find a path. Finally, um, when making big decisions, it's worth thinking about it and moving a bit slowly, especially when those decisions have to do with the land that you care for. And, And that gets back to that idea of, those people thinking about the oil palm companies coming, coming to plant oil palm everywhere. and they didn't know what to do about it, and they were taking charge and trying to work with the resources and their understanding of the law to safeguard themselves. And you know, they were going to move slowly, and thank goodness, because 20 years later they were wealthy. they had so much rubber, they were importing labor to tap the rubber, they had leverage. They were like, they were in a great position. And so they were stewarding their forest by what looked like a bunch of deforestation early on. They ended up managing to steward their forests and they were taking it slow. So I think that is something, you cannot walk back decisions to deforest the planet. We're gonna talk about putting them back. Yes, we can start, but that is a long process. And the better thing to do is just to not do it in the first place. Like, I know that sounds either too simplistic or too hard. Like, what do you mean leave it alone? Well, our planet depends on leaving these forests alone. We actually can't make two degrees if we deforest first and think we'll put back later. We will not make two degrees. So I feel like it is simple, hard, and utterly important. So, with that, um, should I talk a little bit about the biggest lesson of my life coming out of the village?
0: Yes, I. Um, two quick things sure. for anyone who's not who doesn't understand. I I think what you meant by two degrees is oh, yeah. um, the upper limit. Many people think uh, we can we can. Um, the, the the upper limit we can increase the temperature of the planet and keep it livable. That that's what you're referring that to. That's what
2: I'm referring to. It's yeah. really shorthand because honestly, two degrees does not look so great when you look at the models. One point five degrees is really much better. So I was using two degrees as a shorthand for addressing the climate crisis in a in a decent way that gives us a good chance of having a safe future. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, so I just wanted, for anybody who didn't, didn't know that, I wanted them to, to know it. So with that, I would love to hear about the, we would love to hear about the biggest lesson of your life.
2: Um, well, I worked in that village. I just loved it. I worked there for six years. I loved the people, the place, the culture, the work. I learned a lot.
1: May I ask how often you went home during those six years?
2: Um, I went home every year for anywhere from a few months to six months. I was there and back. And um, one time when I got there, shortly after I settled in for a really long field season where I was was planning a huge experiment, like in many farmers' fields, it was going to be a big experiment. It was going to last years, maybe decades. It was going to be where I was going to spend my entire academic career. It was like a big thing. And um, the Kapala Dusun, the mayor, came to me and said, you know what, um, you might not be able to continue your work. We're we are we're not sure that we want you to be here anymore. And I, I said, what do you mean? They don't want me to be here. I want to hear that from the people. So we had a big meeting, big village meeting. And at this meeting, people expressed their, um, their dissatisfaction. They thought I was stealing their land or Plotting to steal their land, or getting rich, or um, just doing the wrong thing, just being not not being a good person, and um, I tried to explain all the good things I was doing, um, not the work. I didn't really focus on the research at all. I focused on how many jobs I had produced, on how much grant money I had brought in, because I did. I created so many projects simply to hire people. I was like, I'm going to study you know, I'm going to study rubber, I'm going to study the rubber producers, I'm going to study the rubber laborers, I'm going to study time, I'm going to study how people, you know, how they use their time, I'm going to have all these families, I'm going to survey, I created as much work as I possibly could. And yet, so I showed them charts, and it was just not the right, it was not the right thing. I didn't convince anybody. And um, looking back, I wish that I had just spoken from the heart. And I had said, this place means, means everything to me and I'll be crushed if you make me leave. But I didn't say that. I just, I just was sure that somehow they would see for themselves that actually I was benefiting them, but I wasn't. Like, I really wasn't. So I had to leave and I couldn't persuade anybody. And in fact, two things happened. They tried to help me think about staying, and I just couldn't. And then my research assistant said to me, whether or not you leave now, if you leave again, I will not be able to protect your experiment. Like, that's dead in the water. They're going to burn it down. So I can't protect your experiment. So what's the point? So I went back to the U.S., and that was that for 15 years. And I just left with such sadness and such shame. I mean. You know, just like, I can't even, it was so awful to just feel like I had failed. And these people that I loved didn't want me there. It was just awful. So for 15 years, I had this shame, didn't talk about it with anyone. I mean, zero. I was, I told my advisor, I said, I think I'm going to have a hard time finishing my PhD, but I didn't. I was fine. But I really just kept it. I told a few people because I was back early. I was surprised. I was home early, but I was so ashamed. I couldn't talk about it. And then I went back 15 years later when I was on sabbatical. My husband kept saying, I was on sabbatical in Indonesia. He kept saying, you should go back to the village. And I said, are you kidding? You know, No way. First of all, there's no communication. I couldn't phone them. There was no phone. I couldn't write them a letter. They, I could not say, guess what? That person you kicked out, she's coming back. So I thought, I can't go there with no notice. But then at the last minute, we were about to go back to the US and I decided I would go bolstered by my husband and my two children because they, everybody loves children. So, so if I went as a family, maybe I'd be okay. And I went back and the first person that I encountered was the daughter of my research assistant, the one who had said, I can't protect your experiment. And he had died a few years earlier. And after she brought me into her house and we were in the kitchen getting ready for dinner, she said, Deborah, why did it take you so long to come back? And I said, are you kidding? I didn't think anyone wanted me here. And she said, what? That wasn't about you, that was about my dad. And I was just stunned. I had no idea. I had no idea, like completely opaque to me, all the internal dynamics and politics that were going on in this village. So I thought, wow, what a relief or what a surprise or who knew what a waste of my 15 years. And then the next morning we were hanging out on the porch and lots of people are coming up to say hi. And these are children, they were children when I was there and now they have their own kids. And then the mayor comes up, the mayor who was mayor when he kicked me out, comes up and sits down next to me and he says, I spent 10 years trying to get a message to you, trying to get a letter to you. And I couldn't, and I'm sorry, because I needed to tell you that what happened was wrong and I am sorry. And I just about, I just about cried. I was so, um, I was so moved and so relieved. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I, it wasn't all me. And I truly felt redeemed, except not a hundred percent because I had spent 15 years blaming myself. And I knew, in fact, I was to blame. I had plenty of blame. Uh, but to know that I was forgiven and that these people were sorry and that it wasn't all lost was just really powerful. And, um, you know, the best the really, aside from my kids, the other best thing that's ever happened to me was to get this back to feel like I, um, it wasn't lost and, and I wasn't lost to them and they weren't lost to me.
0: it's it's moving to hear you tell the story now it was moving to to get that email from you it was heartbreaking to hear you talk about the the hard part the 15 years in your in your ted talk and i'm just i'm curious about the lesson or the lessons from this can you can you put them into words can you Yeah. Well,
2: I guess, I mean, gosh, I hope we all have a chance in less than 15 years to go back to whoever we hurt or whoever we failed and to get some clarity or some forgiveness. I think a really important message is that you shouldn't give up on people and that people make mistakes, big ones. And um, we're all human. These sound like these sound like cliches, but it's the truth. Like we we do make mistakes. And I would say it's important to, to try hard to stay connected. I almost, I tried to fight to stay. I almost wish I had tried harder. So I would say, try hard to stay connected. And if you get disconnected, try even harder to get reconnected. Like it's worth it, it's worth it. And I guess, you know, when I think about my deepest failure it was a failure to listen and a failure to maybe ask for more. And I, you know, I couldn't understand the language. So it was pretty hard to get anything deep, but when these things, when it counts, you can usually understand, like it doesn't take a lot to convey goodwill, badwill, misunderstanding. These are, these aren't too hard to convey. So I guess I wish I had listened harder and asked more and, bared my soul, I think the best thing you can do is actually discuss your feelings. And for me now, the new, the message now is that this extends to the way I feel about the planet and our future and what we're doing to our climate system and our world and the fact that we have to work together. If we don't, we stand to lose a lot. We stand to lose not only our connection to the planet, which sustains us, but our connection to each other. I think we won't forgive ourselves and we won't forgive each other if we don't take on the climate crisis the way it needs to be taken on. So I think trying to be connected is the way we get through this.
0: Received. And at the, I I just, uh, another, Lesson came up for me, at least. I'm, yeah. I'm curious what you think. Um, to be humble about our own stories about what's happening, you know, not to 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 to, to challenge our own stories about what's happening.
2: Oh yeah, like uh, this. Yes, this whole thing about the deforestation with the oil palm. Like, I actually wrote a scientific paper about it, and I talked about what it meant and why it was happening but I I really need to write the follow-up, which was, guess what? That was not a bad idea. Uh, It looked bad or it looked problematic, but it was sound at the time and it it turned out well. And um, you're right, I was perhaps overemphasizing my own importance in my story by taking all the blame (laughs) that in fact there was a lot going on that I didn't know about. And not that we should look for ways to not blame ourselves, but that we should be skeptical of our own story because you're right we don't actually know it all
1: and i find it moving that you said when you get made it back to the village your friend your assistant said this was about my dad that it was you know that intimate in a sense that internal
2: yeah and she knew right away and i just it blew my mind that i had
1: No, no concept. I want to kind of comment also that this theme of connectedness has, I mean, every single conversation I'm having now about solutions, whether it's about physical health, social, psychological, and mental, emotional health, environmental reality and environmental health, economic reality, you know homelessness just all of the conversations they're coming to this word of connectedness and and you know so indigenous wisdom in air quotes that the the malady of our times perhaps is that we are living as a you know in the developed world we have alienated ourselves from each other in a variety of ways I think which I won't go off into but we're more concerned about status than we are about connections as maybe one fair generalization and that our our concept of ecology is like, well, we don't have a concept of ecology. So we just fragment everything in our ecosystems without any understanding that that's a death knell. And, and it doesn't matter if you're tilling soil or cutting down trees or putting roads through pasture or you know sending ships across oceans, like all of these, th- this, these things, it seems to come back to this fragmentation so I, I kind of just want you to talk a little bit about your feelings on that because this isn't a message that is has made it to the top yet of how we're having the environmental conversation. That's what what is missing, or what the main solution is, is connectedness.
2: Yeah, um, you know, as an ecologist, it's it's like that's what we preach. That is what's the preaching is like that it is all connected, and. Um, so in my own personal world, as a scientist, I'm very familiar with that. Putting that into action as a human being is very different to like to live it, to believe it, to to think that it's it's true. It's very different, and I think it's um, really important to reconnect regular people with these ideas. And I'm, I'm reminded of, um, in fact, this is not new. Of course, the indigenous peoples have known it forever, but even among our Western canon, Aldo Leopold described in detail what happens when a little creature, when a bit of um, you know, when a bit of nutrient is released by weathering from a piece of rock. He follows that little piece of the element through the entire ecosystem. So, Aldo Leopold in 1930 was already thinking about ecosystems. Rachel Carson came back to it in the 60s and described in beautiful detail, what happens when we spray an entire field with an awful pesticide, like it's not just the pests that die, you know, the birds are dying soon, because it turns out that the, the pesticide dropped down and was in the larva, and the larvae were eaten by the birds, and I mean, it's just, of course, it's all connected, it's very helpful, I would urge your listeners to like, go back to these people, Aldo Leopold, Rachel Carson, read some stories about some of the some of the tragedies that we have um, experienced in the past and see if we can figure out what we're doing right now that we'll be shocked at when someone writes about them uh, in such detail. Like it is, we have we have forgotten this. And I think um, this, this fragmented world that we live in is something that we've got to come to grips with. I think the world is coming to grips with the fact that at least in the United States, our country, was built on slavery. And in fact, we are coming to grips with the idea that our country was inhabited before we got here and there were people who lived here and were managing the land and and that we, we took that land. I think the other acknowledgement we need is that we are living in this lifeboat called the planet Earth. And it is our life support system. It's the only one we have we depend on it utterly. And it sounds again, like, of course, we depend on it. But we forget, we think we get food at the supermarket. We don't, we get food from the planet. We think we get water from the tap, and we don't, you know, the water is cycling through the entire planet. So I think we've forgotten. I hope it becomes another one of those acknowledgments that like the earth is sustaining us, and we need to remember that every day. So That connection, I hope to rebuild. I hope that we can rebuild it.
1: If you would like to, I wanna hear your thoughts on this optimal future idea. And because of what you said, I wanna add a little bit. The research I've been doing lately has been more about trying to understand an indigenous worldview. And I've been shocked to find out that the worldview I've come to through all of the scientific research Is the indigenous worldview in that um, literally several of the things you just said, recognizing that this is the only life support system that's available, literally, you know, there just isn't anything else out there, and that there is a miraculousness to existence in its own right. And when we talk about sort of, you know, all the problems that we have to solve today, it's like we don't have the right paradigm in place here to solve these problems. But I, I get really excited also about like, okay, so here we are. Now we can change the paradigm. It's really time to live in a, a what I'm calling a biospheric philosophy or a life support system philosophy. And do you know Vine Deloria, the, the great Native American intellectual, he talks about in, in one of his most important works, this idea that when the White Americans, the, the early colonists and so forth, looked at, and the early U.S. government, looked at Native Americans. They thought they were incompetent, literally, that they didn't know how to make use of the land because, as you were talking about, they weren't cutting down the trees. They weren't putting in tobacco farms. They weren't destroying the land to create cash crops because they had been living on these lands for hundreds to thousands of years successfully. Right. In a In a rotational way, you talk about um, the rotational agriculture of cutting down the forest to then plant rice and then getting out of the way letting it completely regenerate and then coming back and starting that process over again this is uh, apparently not just a sort of a technique it's a it's a very philosophical understanding of reality how the how the life support system works i find that really interesting Mm -hmm. Um, and then i think also this idea of the native american kind of understanding of balance according to another intellectual who I really like, John Trudell, he talks about how misogyny wasn't an issue in Native American culture, because Mm -hmm. they understood fundamentally that men and women, you know, male, female, this is the balance. This is how continuation occurs. And these are such critical realities that somehow through our Western European, American, you know, industrialization of all things We've just been born into a society that's not even aware of these things yet. And yet they're so easy to relate to, they're so palpable that I I think there is so much potential for us to have a quick mind shift and move into a greater relationship with the the real materialness and the real miraculousness of being alive. So with all that kind of thrown on the table, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about an optimal future, what kind of things we need to prioritize or what it might feel like to be living in that optimal future. If you can
2: i would love that i i want to just jump on the miraculous first for a minute um whenever i so the two times when i'm a teacher the two times that i get most excited are when i'm talking about photosynthesis which is truly the miracle of the planet which is like air water sunshine and enzyme and like you get air becoming mass you get air co2 becoming a thing that's like you and me—it's food. It's—it's it's stunning. It's stunning. It's the most magical thing in the world that we can have photosynthesis. It's magical. The other thing that's magical is some of the physics I taught. I teach about climate to do with things like the fact that that spheres or any body will radiate at a kind of a a certain inherent harmonic, like that things have in a sense harmonics, and that it's math. The math describes it, but what it's describing is some like miraculous order. It's just miraculous order. The physics of climate and the physics of our planet are are just a documentation of the miraculousness of the order of our universe. So it's kind of beautiful. So the life part and the not life, the physics that's not life, which is like radiation and the planet and weird stuff, and then life, photosynthesis, it's phenomenal. So miraculous... Describes my opinion of the earth and the way we live in it it's truly miraculous and wonderful and just just wonderful so that's my most fun time as a teacher in terms of like grounding like okay so that's fun to learn about but how do we have a livable future. My vision for the future is that we are fundamentally not so divided from one another. I think to solve the climate crisis, to solve the planetary crisis, to solve like the crisis of, you know, some of us are just not making it. We need to cross that political divide. We need to not be so divided. So I do believe that that the best, the optimal future is that we are not so divided, that we're much closer to each other. We might fight and we might argue, but we're not quite so divided. And that we're not, so we're not divided from each other and we're not divided from the earth and that we love each other and that we love the earth and that we move together and that we move together. We think about each other across generations as well as across across national lines and that we have developed this deep affection for an appreciation of the natural world around us. Like it's not just about Recycling and pollution and destruction, like there's a beauty to our relationship with the earth. It's just, as I said, photosynthesis, you can't beat it. It's just the most amazing thing. It truly actually transformed the planet. Without it, we wouldn't exist because we wouldn't have had an atmosphere with oxygen in it. So it's pretty important. Um, but I it sounds simple. I want us to be a people that is together with each other and together with the planet. And in terms of like what it might look like, I think everything, what, like what's different, what's the, what does it look like? Well, the whole world is electric, just letting you know, it will all be electric and the energy that produces it will be renewable and we'll do our best to replace every last electron that we need to power our hungry society, however, we're not going to use as much. In my fantasy dream world, we actually are conservative. We actually do conserve. We actually use a little less because we have been through the struggle when we knew that energy, the energy providing that electricity was harmful and we knew it was harming ourselves and others. And so we cut down to avoid harm. And that's going to carry through in the future so that we actually are not using every last electron that we produce and that when we we have my ideal future is like we we nailed it and we address climate change and we made our climate better than it's going to be right now. And when climate catastrophes hit we're going to all come together because we know it could be us next. And even if we didn't think it was going to be us next, we've simply come together through this effort. And so we want to help each other out. So my dream is for a cleaner world full of energy from people and for people. And that we get through it and we, we have a better, a better climate than we're looking at right now.
0: May I um, share two things that I saw as I was seeing your vision? The first was when you're talking about the beauty of photosynthesis and the beauty of this order, that we have a, a felt sense of that beauty. Like we have a, we, we, we like live, live in that beauty. That was the first thing. And the other one was um, that with our, we could think of it as being more conservative, you know, not using all the electricity we we generate, but we just get time off, you know, we can rest. In this in this future.
2: I love that idea. I love the idea that because all those connections take energy, right? We if we're going to stay connected to each other, and to the planet. We all have to have time for gardening (laughs) and whatever else we do that takes us closer to the dirt. So um, yeah, I love the sense of the felt. Like I I don't know how to convey that except to say it again and again in the classroom, like this is amazing. You got to understand it's air and then it's mass. It's like, it becomes a thing that it was air. That is-
1: We're not that smart. We don't know how to eat from the air. No, we and don't. it's and and is it is it accurate or fair to say that photosynthesis is kind of the opposite of a nuclear explosion i've, I've posed this the question opposite of a way.
2: fire is better I, I don't really know what okay. a nuclear explosion is but like fire takes whatever we the plant built and sends it back into its in its parts co2 yes. water ox, you know oh, that's my dog
1: happy dog yeah that fire takes something and disassembles it And photosynthesis without anything other than sunlight and moisture and the elements that are in the air is able to make something, is able to take nothingness into assembly.
2: There's one more piece, which is nitrogen. My colleagues would be furious if I didn't mention nitrogen, (laughs) which goes into that little catalyst, the little enzyme that actually allows a cell to like to do this work. So nitrogen is super important. So is phosphorus, that's my thing, and if that's in the energy so there's tons of stuff a ton but of stuff. At it's at its core it's taking that and the energy from the sun and and the mass of the air and turning it into something we can eat. it's amazing
1: yeah, and makes our bodies and I mean just everything biological practically is created through photosynthesis
0: it is and, and just so you know I, I feel that I, I have a f- I do have a felt sense as you talk about it.
2: Good, then maybe my students like got it too. I hope so.
0: <laughs> Me too. Yeah,
1: I wanna I want to sort of wrap up by saying I feel energized. I think not only have we covered like an incredible array of important focal areas, this idea of forests affecting the global climate from the tropics, your personal journey out of fragmentation with this community in Borneo, and then ending up with photosynthesis and this idea of, we've, we've covered a lot of other things, but assembly, that's another form of defragmentation. It's just phenomenal and I'm, I'm so excited about where at least my awareness is going. And I thank you so much for the, the important studies that you have written and the important work you're doing the way that you are mentoring future climate solutionaries and social solutionaries, and there's so many facets to the the work that you're doing that we we don't have time to cover. But I really admire the the contributions that you're making to the world and to science and to people's lives and hearts. And uh, it's it's really unique. And I want to say more, but thank you very much. Thanks thank for being you. That's
2: here. That's so kind. It's so kind. I really appreciate it. I love the chance to talk and to talk with you and your listeners.
0: And I just want to piggyback and say, thank you just for your, for this, but just thank you for your work. Like your, you know, your service, if that word is palatable, um, it's clearly, uh, it is clearly service and it's clearly like a, a lifetime of it. So big, thank you. Thank you. And just a pleasure meeting you.
2: Pleasure to meet you both. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Professor Deborah Lawrence, Professor of Environmental Sciences and Director of the Environmental Thought and Practice Program at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, Consultant to the U.S. Forest Service and USAID, An outstanding contributor to the global body of scientific research on tropical forests, nutrient cycling and ecosystems, indigenous peoples and more.
2: Oh,